Hello and welcome to MacBytes, episode 111. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. In this episode, The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe. In the last show, we mentioned the supposed limit on tokens for each Twitter client. Alistair passed on a useful nugget of information regarding this token limit for Twitter clients. He said existing Twitter clients were given a custom limit of twice their existing user base. I still thought that was still a little small by my reckoning, but fingers crossed it's enough to stop our favourite Twitter clients being nuked. Actually, you know, Twitter don't help in that department. They're that bad when it comes, you know, whenever they, they update something. I do. It, it breaks. It's like, what were you thinking? That's a terrible idea. They are probably one of the few companies that make the UK government look competent. Now that takes some doing. No arguments there then. No, and another update from the last show. Oh yes, that was an update to uh, Recorder Pro. After saying that the record mode was all subtle and determined by the theme that you choose, it's all change. And it's now a warm yellow. Now it's still not as in your face as most huge red recording buttons and it is still controllable with the Apple Watch, but I thought it was worth mentioning. And as promised, we checked out iTalk on the iPad and it does unbelievably still run at two times. It works perfectly, but it could look better. You've got that installed, haven't you? I've got that installed. I'm actually using it right now as my backup recording for uh, recording this uh, podcast. I've got something doing a backup recording, but if, if only you could see me. Um, I've got two pairs of headphones on <laughs> and two iPhones in here with a digital recorder and the primary recording going. And um, before we started, it took us 25 minutes to manage to place a call to each other. That's technology <laughs> for you. Don't go there. No, don't, don't. Do it a bit tomorrow at this rate. And then, then some of the stuff that was dated today. Never mind, never mind. Anyway, after my adventures with the initial 10.13.4 update detailed last time, I swore off the subsequent security update and 10.13.5. But? My OCD got the better of me. Couldn't stand the one, you know, that shows in, in the Mac App Store. So I dived in. Madness. What can I say? The adrenaline of the jeopardy is just intoxicating. After more Apple Minutes that bear no relation to Earth Minutes than I could reasonably be expected to endure, my iMac sprang back to life unscathed. In fact, and you may all have to sit down for this one, they've fixed something. No, really, really fixed something. In the users and groups login items, I have my Mac connecting to a shared mount point. Uh, the drive's actually shared from the airport extreme. You should really do an RIP then, but never mind. Dun, dun, dun. On my main Mac, it insisted on stopping and requesting my password on every reboot. Now, there's a dialogue box and it says, remember password. Oh, if only it did. This is why I don't like rebooting. Now, I don't reboot that often, so it was still mildly annoying, though. Not often, but mildly annoying. The password was in the keychain. I did make sure it was. And every time I saw this dialogue box, I saved it again. In fact, I did that every time it bothered me. To no avail. So after this reboot, after the update, it connected all by itself. For the first time ever. Make a note of the date. I'm requesting this great day be declared an annual holiday in honour of this incomparable event. Obviously, it'll be broken again next week, but just let me enjoy this feeling of victory for now. Did you just say next week? Did I? Whoops. Mm, you did. <laughs>
Anyway. Obviously, that's Mac Bytes Weeks. Would it be foolish to ask you if you ventured near uh, 10.13.6? Are you kidding me? It was released, I think, 24 hours ago. A job for Christmas, if ever I saw one. Now, another follow-up to something that we talked about regarding Mike and Graham attempting to use the space bar to preview in Windows. The pain is potentially gone with a couple of new apps. Yeah, a couple of shows back, we were talking about the space bar to preview a file in Finder. And I said that I do this regularly. I think I say this quite often, actually, on the show. But I do this regularly on Windows. It's it's habit. And Graham says he does it too. Of course, when you do hit the spacebar in File Explorer in Windows, nothing happens. Until now, that is. And this week, you found a couple of utility apps, both available from Microsoft App Store. The first one is called Quick Look. And it's free. That's imaginative. I thought that actually. I wonder where they got that idea yeah. from. Mm, no idea. Carry on. But it's free. It runs at startup. It sits in the background and it works just like the Mac. In my testing, it previewed all the files that I tried, including Office, PDF, images, videos and zip files. Do you know, that's quite impressive because when it first debuted on the Mac... Uh, it didn't work with zip files. Do you remember you needed that better zip plugin to make it work? That's right, yeah. There were extensions, um, quick look extensions that you, that you could install. So that, considering it's free, actually does more than the Mac one did originally. The other app is called Sea Pro, S-W-E-R. It costs £10.49, but there is a free trial. Although I don't know what the limitations of the free, free trial are, and I, it wouldn't—it didn't tell me that in the the app store. I couldn't find that information anywhere, so I don't know whether it's a thirty-day trial, or amount of usage, or, or what. But in addition to showing a, a preview of the file, it shows file information, so things like the, the the type, the date created, the date modified, and so on. Like Quick Look, when I tested it, it worked well with PDFs, with images, with videos, zip files as well. One limitation with SIA is that it can't preview Office files. Well, it can, but what it actually displays is the document structure rather than the content. Because since Office 2007, under the hood, Office files are actually XML files, and, and that's what it's displaying. Do you know, since two developers have created a way to replicate the Mac functionality, it makes me wonder why Microsoft haven't built it in. I'd have guessed it was proprietary to Apple. But if so, then that's not bothering these developers right down to calling it exactly the same name. Yeah, so just why wouldn't Microsoft add it? Just getting on with it, aren't they? Mm. Well, maybe they'll add it into Windows 11 or whatever. Well, they're not going to give it a new name, are they? But Windows 10, whatever the next build is. Yeah, they don't want to move on from 10 because Apple have been there for years. True. Mm. Unlike Firefox, which is like 3047 at this point. Anyway, um, an update to the... Uh, I was going to I was, I was going to make a funny, but I can't think of anything. Please don't. Uh, no. Please don't. It's too early in the show. <laughs> oh, I was going You've to sing. You've not warmed up. I was going to sing. No, no, absolutely not. No. I was going to sing the banana splits, but no, I won't. I'll just, I'll just be serious. Um, an update to the banana... <laughs> You can't be serious when I've put Banana Password Saga in the recording notes. An update to the Banana Password Saga. There we go. Oh, serious. well done, dear. Serious face. 
Twitter reliably informed me. That there, There's a sentence that shouldn't really work. Twitter reliably informed me. Do you think it's fake news? Yes. No, I saw the pictures. It can't be. Um, that there's a trend for scaring the pants off folk by writing invisible messages on bananas. Now, these messages are very faint. If you can imagine like using a um, cocktail stick to mm. write a message until the banana ripens, at which point the message turns brown and gets very spooky. Stealing my ideas again. Of course, some of my passwords will look like excerpts from The Matrix, not to mention the fact they were like 80 characters long. But yes, this is happening apparently. So be careful when you buy your bananas. Of course, did you see that story last week? Bananas are doomed. No. Oh, I did. Yes, I did. Everything to been, do with, with banana blight. Everything's been doomed, hasn't it? It is. The world's sort of on the brink. Yes. Yeah. But hey, there's new map bites, so can, not, not all bad. <laughs> no. A listener, moving, moving on, a, a, a new listener got in touch after the last show. Um, Joe, he wrote saying that he bought an FM transmitter on our recommendation. He tried what I thought was similar before, but it was just too fiddly with chargers and wires. And this really does just work just out of the box. So he thanks us for the tip. Nice one. Nice one. I've got those other things, you know, the ones that were like um, three and a half mil jack stuck in the bottom. Yeah. And transmitter thing. Now, obviously, that I did have that. I, I got one that matched my phone and it was lovely. And it does still work. Uh, and that one doesn't need batteries either, I don't think. But Apple saw wise, didn't they? they well, hmm, wise isn't really the word I'd use in relation to that. But they whipped the port away. So that stopped me using that. And like he's saying, the solutions that I had, they all needed batteries and charging and just generally fiddling with. So um, that's why I tried that. Do you remember I had, when we set it up, it was like I had four other devices and I was testing the principle. And then I actually found one that did it all in one. Mm, so yeah, it's a great thing that. We, we are now the proud owner of uh, four of them. Now you're wondering why. Two cars, two phones. Why would we do that? Um, what we've done is, which is actually far quicker, you know, like the blue, the Bluetooth grab that happens when you get in somebody's car and the Bluetooth says pairing and you're like, oh, I want that. No, no, we don't have to do that. What we do is we've got two of them. So uh, all through the week, we're out in Mike's car at the weekend, all through the week, it connects to his phone. And then the weekend I unplug that and I plug mine in and then I'm in control, which is <laughs> how I like it. So, uh, yes. A tip there. They're so inexpensive, you could actually buy two, one, one for each party. All the kids, hey, you could buy three or four. Uh, anyway, yes. Thank you very much, Joe. Good to have you along for the ride. Yeah. And we also heard from Evie. Oh, she was excited. At the prospect of a new toy, my idea for a hybrid airport device. I mentioned that was a device I'd buy. And she said, oh, I had high hopes at WWDC. It was the logical next step. I was poised to buy. And then crickets. Yeah, what can I say? Apple may have a plan, but if I do, I wish they'd share it with the rest of us. So, are you covering WWDC? Best not, hey. Not after the Google I.O. thing, no. What was that? AI, so advanced it can run your life for you. I already do. And Apple? More animated emojis. Words failed me. Fear not, though. Happy to report the MapBytes Live for the great event was a complete triumph. We had an absolute ball. We certainly did. Yes, but it's a sad state of affairs, though, when we're reduced to lusting after new kit from, wait for it, Microsoft. Yeah, I missed the announcement. I was working. 
It was literally announced just an hour ago. Well, it was an hour ago. Now it's probably about three hours ago because we we have recording problems. Um, they've announced something they're calling a Surface Go tablet, which is a 10-inch tablet. And it's one of those convertible things. You know, the things where they kind of disconnect, like a James Bond car. Yeah. It is very competitively priced. 64 gig uh, storage, 4 gig of RAM, 380 pounds. 128 gig of storage, 8 gig of RAM, 510 now, given reaction to the big brother of this kit, that's the Surface Pro convertible thingy, I'm feeling it would be rude not to. Well, at least have a look at it anyway. I, I read, I think it's about a week ago, a Medium post from a longtime Mac user. And the title was, The Surface Pro is everything the MacBook Pro should be. It's very detailed and it's a really considered piece. It's not a clickbait thing at all. It's very detailed. It's his personal experience. He's used... MacBook Pros, he's used iMacs, etc. And he was actually looking for a mobile Windows device and he's been searching for about two years and couldn't find one that was anything like comparable to a MacBook until he tried the Surface Pro. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. After reading that, I was actually quite depressed. I'm thinking of Real Excel on a portable and convertible 10-inch screen. That's you sold then. Mm, I think it might be. Well, it's on pre-order now for delivery 23rd of August. Watch this space. Now, remember back in 2010 in the World Cup in South Africa? Now, while you might not recall the precise details, especially if you're not a football fan, you'll surely not forget the birth of the infamous Vuvuzela. Allegedly, a musical instrument produced a sound, it's hard to describe, loud, monotonous tone, and it sounded like a swarm of a million bees. It was so annoying that the ITV, that's the uh, app and software, the hardware and software we use, introduced a special version with Vuvuzela, oh dear, the teeth, with Vuvuzela suppression built in. Well, it's back. I seem to recall a certain person demonstrated just how it sounds. I thought you might, so here you go. Do you want me to be the Vuvuzela? No. That was back in June 2010, when we were experiencing the ignominy of being locked inside the car park at the Arndale Centre in Manchester while attempting to get into the queue to collect our iPhone 4. Remember that? Bang in the midst of Bumpergate, if you recall. Anyway, as I was saying, it's back with the World Cup in Russia. This time, Rogue Amoeba have come up with a solution. It's a configuration for audio hijack and it promises to quieten down the Vuvuzelas. I've not actually noticed them much this time, though, to be honest. That's probably because you're basking in the glory of England not being back before the postcards that you expected. That is very true. It is. Anyway, um, we had fun last week with iMessage. Oh, yes. It went along the following lines. In fact, I think Siri and Lady Siri can help us out here. Where you go, guys? Yes, I am. Are you there? I don't think there's a setting to change. Your replies are coming in before my texts. Have I changed the setting? Good idea. It's a bug. We'll talk about it on MacBytes. Yes, I did. Thank you. Did you get the video I sent? Apparently, it's a known bug. There's several ways to fix it. I turned the phone off and on again, and that sorted it. For five minutes, until it started doing it again. Yeah, at the weekend I was in the supermarket 
as, as you do, and you were at home. No change there then. Believe me, it's the safest option. Anyway, I sent you a text, you replied, and in the conversation thread was the I'm driving with do not disturb whilst driving message turned on. I thought you'd got to the car fast, considering five seconds before you were courgette bothering in the fruit and veg aisle. At that point, I was actually still in Tesco. Um, do you reckon my iPhone thought I was driving the trolley? Like a Formula One driver. It's not the first time that this has happened, though, is it? No, when you mentioned it, I thought, I vaguely remember this. We covered it back in episode 61, and that was December 2011. Which is when I first said, and you can follow me at twitter.com slash Siri. Yes, Siri got his Twitter account. I wonder if the two are linked. Watch it. The next one with iMessage, of course, will be turning on the iCloud option. What iCloud option? The promise of message sync via iCloud. Don't go there. Changing the subject totally, last week I sent someone a zip file via email. Fair enough. Now, he uses Gmail and Safari, so he opened the mail, he clicked on the download icon, and then he wanted to send the zip file to someone else, but he didn't want to forward my mail. So he dragged what he thought was the zip file into a new email and then received an error which said, unable to upload because it's a folder or package. And it turns out that when he downloaded the zip file, Safari unzipped it by default, creating a folder of the zip files. So unknown to him, what he was dragging into the new email was a folder. To stop this happening, and I told him how, in Safari, you go to the preferences, select the general tab and disable open safe files after downloading. Do you know, all this was to help the muggle user. That went well, didn't it? We've said before that is a dangerous option and it really should have been removed years ago. It's a serious case of over-exuberant unzipping. I mean, in his case, when it had unzipped, it puts it in the trash, doesn't it? I think it does, yeah. So, because he was accessing his mail via a browser, and that browser happened to be Safari, he was never going to be able to download that zip file. No. Not in a usable format. No. Useless. Mm. Anyway, Wirecast 9, something we need to catch up on. We mentioned NAB a couple of shows back, but I didn't mention something that was very on point for us. Telestream took the opportunity at NAB to announce the immediate availability of a beta for Wirecast 9. My response? Seriously? They'd only released version 8 back in October 2017, so we're talking five months. And it's not a cheap app either. It's just shy of $1,000 for a full pro license. Now, that's not something you want to be paying out twice a year for. Worse than that, the last time we upgraded to version 8, there was a compulsory purchase of a maintenance contract. Notice the compulsory in there. I tried to get it out of the basket. There was no way round it. But back to NAB and the announcements. Uh, next from Telestream was news. They were changing the revenue model. You know what that means. All together now. Subscription. Yes, an annual payment was involved, but they studiously avoided dropping the dirty, dirty subscription word. So I sat myself down with something to imbibe for the expected pain of the announcement of the annual fleecing amount. It was a video, I think it was about 12 minutes. It took him about 10 minutes of self-justifying waffle before he finally announced an amount that shocked me more than I'd readied myself for. 
Now, given that the current, it's currently $1,000 for a full pro license and about $350 for an upgrade, an upgrade which is pretty much an annual event, I might add, I was expecting to be abjectly horrified. Brace yourselves. This was the amount he announced. $100 a year. I thought I'd misheard him. Never great to see money leaving the building, but way, way better than I'd feared. Now, before they hear the show and get the idea of upping that amount, I was well advanced with my plans to move away from the app completely, so don't get cocky. It was the new price that convinced me to stay for at least the first year of this new system. And at this stage, I was thinking surely a beta program meant I had a few months to consider it all. Beta programs usually run for a while. No! The next week, they announced version 9 was available. Possibly the shortest beta program in history. And I was ready for a scrap. A runt. Serious venting session. Spitting bullets. All of the above. And? And then the email arrived informing me that since I'd bought the maintenance thing, the one I couldn't get out of buying, if you recall, well, since I had that, they were providing me with a completely free update to version 9. Not often that happens. So now I just need to schedule a few MacBytes learning sessions to take it for a test drive. People, let me know what apps you'd like to see covered and we'll sort it out. OK, let's carry on the video theme and let's talk about how ScreenFlow nearly caused a huge problem for us. As anyone who's listened to the show before will know, we're both Manchester United fans and a big part of United's history is the Munich air crash. To give you a bit of background, in 1958, the United team were returning from a game in Belgrade in Yugoslavia. And the plane stopped in Munich in Germany to refuel. It was in the days when plane fuel tanks were low capacity. The plane was ready to take off again to complete the journey back to Manchester, but due to ice and snow on the runway, the pilot aborted the takeoff. They cleared the snow from the runway and they tried again. But once again, the pilot decided that it was too dangerous, so the takeoff was aborted. More snow was cleared from the runway and from the wings of the plane, and they tried to take off again. But tragically, this time, before the plane could get off the ground, it smashed through a fence at the end of the runway, and it crashed into some um, fuel storage and then into a house. And 23 out of the 44 passengers who were on board were killed, and that included eight of the players. In 2001, Elaine and I launched a website called munich58.co.uk and it was an online memorial dedicated to the people who died in the crash. And what we do each year is we organise and we promote a remembrance ceremony at Old Trafford, which is the home of United. It takes place on the anniversary of the crash. Back in 2001, there was just a handful of us, I think about 10, 12 people there. And over the years, it's grown and now it's attended by thousands of people. Each year, we do our own video recording of the event and we make that video available via the Munich 58 website and also via its YouTube channel. And what we do, we use two iPhones. You record the ceremony itself, which takes about 25 minutes. It's a little short ceremony led by United's club chaplain, contains a mixture of songs, poems and prayers. And I record some shots of the crowd or B-roll, as it's known in the business. 
Back at home, we use ScreenFlow to combine all the footage into a single video. We intersperse the crowd shots into the footage of the ceremony itself. Now this year was the 60th anniversary. It was a very big event. There was a huge media coverage and it wasn't really the time for something to go wrong. And everything was fine until we got home. You copied the video off your phone onto your iMac. I think you used PhoneView to do that because I think that the, the thinking was that AirDrop would have taken too long. The file was over two gigabytes and you'd also tried PhotoSync, which crashed again, probably because the file was too big. And then I did the same with my video. We then used the file transfer in remote desktop to get my video file to your Mac because you were putting the video together. You then added your video to a new ScreenFlow project, added it to the timeline, dragged the playhead across it to check it, and all was good. You then added my video to the same project in ScreenFlow, dragged it onto the timeline, dragged the playhead across it to check it, and there was no audio, there was no waveform, in fact, there was no picture. I tried my video on my iMac, and we had exactly the same. Both Macs were using the same version of ScreenFlow, except one was direct from ScreenFlow, the other was from the App Store. Not that that should have made a difference. We tried ScreenFlow 6 on both iMacs. Same result. At this point, I actually wondered if it hadn't recorded. You know when you get that funny feeling? But obviously it had, because earlier in the day I'd actually played it on my iPhone. So obviously it had recorded, but you, you just get that funny feeling that maybe it hadn't, although... You know, logically, it had. So anyway. That feeling's called panic, dear. Yes, uh, panic. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we decided that we would try Camtasia. So fired up Camtasia, started a new project, dragged the MOV file into it, dragged it onto the timeline. Success. It worked. However, that's not a long-term solution, as we much prefer to use ScreenFlow rather than Camtasia. Not to mention the fact that the template was in ScreenFlow. Yeah. So it was okay as a, as, you know, as a short-term one-off, let's get this job done. But we don't want to do that every year. Anyway, we sat down, tried to work out what the difference was. And the biggest difference was that your iPhone was on iOS 10 and mine was on iOS 11. Yet how many months behind updating was I at that point? I don't know. But, you know, usually I'm the one behind. This time you were the one behind. I had my Apple Watch attached to my phone and I was determined not to lose my consistent standing. I knew there was a reason. Yes. Yeah. The thing was, mine, my, my iPhone was set to use that new HEVC format, the high efficiency video format, and that's the default setting. Now, this high efficiency, it offers better compression than the, the H.264 format for video. So I thought maybe ScreenFlow didn't support HEVC. So more research was needed, and it was through this research that I found the answer on an Apple Knowledge Base page. When you share HEIF, which is the new photo format, or HEVC, which, as I said, is the new video format, um, using methods such as AirDrop, Messages or Email, it's shared in what they call a more compatible format. So JPEG for photos and H.264 for videos. So that was the problem. I copied the file from my iPhone to my iMac again, and this time I did it with AirDrop. Because it was a big file, it took about two minutes, which I guess wasn't as long as I thought it might be. So once I had it on the iMac, 
dragged it onto the timeline in ScreenFlow, dragged the playhead across the video, and hey presto, both the audio and the video were there. So it appears that ScreenFlow is actually a problem not recognizing videos in HEVC format. Hopefully they'll fix this, um, but in the meantime, the solution is to use AirDrop to get the file off my phone. I found that absolutely ridiculous. Again, Apple love to say they're making things easier. How is that logical? That the file format you end up with when you copy something depends on the way you copied it. It's not logical. No, no. Um, Don't like things that aren't logical. And that's why it took us so long to work out the problem. Well, the thing was, it, that's typical because we actually had a job to do. Mm. That video needed to semi-live stream. What we were doing was we were live streaming it to Facebook later, weren't we? Yeah. Once it had been edited, we, we had an, a, a time that was set that we were going to live stream that, albeit semi-live stream. So it was necessary to get the job done. So actually what we had to do speed-wise, because I didn't have time to play around, was do without the B-roll until we'd done that initial broadcast and then cut it in later. But it wasn't just me bitten with errant software, was it? Oh, no. I thought it was going mad. I should have known better. I was in pages for iOS. No, I've no idea why I was there either. I couldn't work out how to do something simple. This isn't unusual, but this time uh, I wanted to add spacing between paragraphs. Not spacing between lines, that's fine. I wanted to control the gap between each paragraph to save putting in two carriage returns for spacing. I think I looked at every option and I thought, no, you're going to have to give in and Google it. Can't be done. What? Seriously? I figured, I mean, it just can't be done. But I thought, well, the workaround would be to create a style in Pages for Mac. And then that would be available via iOS and it would apply it. Which brought the, up the question of what to do if you don't have a Mac. Which meant I had to check out the browser-based version of Pages. Oh, was it slow. It also spawned multiple tabs like crazy. Every time I did anything, another tab, another tab. Now, good news, browser-based version supports paragraph spacing. So was this the solution? Had another think. Decided not really. Because if you remember, and I know you discussed this because you had a problem with something, it's a nightmare to bypass mobile Safari not letting you log into iCloud in a browser. It can be done, but we're back to what muggle would even know that you could do that, much less how to do it. In fact, they might not even know that there was a browser-based version of the iCloud apps. I mean, it, it feels like an afterthought, doesn't it? I'm just getting grumpier and grumpier with Apple's software malaise. I think that's what it is. Can I have an extra Reality Bites this time as well? I'm not going to attempt to stop you, given that you've got the bit between teeth over this one. Wise, very wise. I use a whole range of Notes apps, each for their strengths. Now, the Evernote Clipper is usually best for saving articles. When I save an article, I prefer a simplified version of an article. And the Evernote Clipper creates a basic text version. Now, the OneNote Clipper doesn't do a bad job. It often gives a more accurate representation of the original page, but it can cause problems with the Mac version of OneNote if it manages to capture an illegal character, which it has done before. 
and completely stopped me getting into OneNote. Needed to open it up on Windows to fix it, so don't like doing that too often. So, Evernote it is then. Now, my browser of preference is Chrome, best of a bad bunch, wide range of extensions, etc. And a few weeks back, the clipper started acting up. It worked. It showed the clipper. It showed what it should show. But it was showing related search results from my Evernote notes, which I definitely didn't want. And I turned off. It also wasn't adding my default tags. In fact, as I checked, it wasn't adding any tags at all. Or that's what it looked like until I checked inside Evernote and it had added one tag, which was null, which wasn't one of my tags, I can assure you. So I thought, right, OK, let's nuke and pave. So I uninstalled the clipper, reinstalled it, troubleshooting trip to Google. Nothing worked. At that point, I asked if yours was working. Which it wasn't. So at least it wasn't just me. The weird thing to me was it was perfect in all the other browsers I installed it in. And by this stage, I was running around installing it all over the place to find one that worked. But it, was, it wasn't working in Chrome, but it was fine in Firefox, Safari and Opera. Time to hit up support. Luckily, I'm a paying customer. I recorded a video of what was going on. I included a detailed report of how to replicate the issue and settled in for a long wait. But as I say, as a premium customer, I thought they should at least consider reading it and hopefully replying. I was pleasantly surprised. Within 30 minutes, a reply arrived. Sadly, that was the high point of my experience. It was a reply from a crowdsourced support service. What's that? Well, not an Evernote employee. Short version. We know it's broken. It's been broken for weeks. No fix in sight. Now, within a couple of hours, I got another email saying my ticket was expiring. So I replied, giving them my thoughts in no uncertain terms. At that point, I got a reply from an Evernote employee making two points. One, he was closing the ticket. And two, I should contact them again if I wanted an update on their progress. Seriously? I don't want to beg for an update. I want it fixed, you idiots. Best advice provided, this is a good one, use another browser. So, on that basis, my car's got a fault. Do I get told to drive another one until they can be bothered to fix it? Now, the support, or rather lack of it, crowdsourced. I know many folks are willing to provide support and advice in forums for free. You know, it's their expertise and they love doing it. But I think it's different when it's for a company I'm paying for a premium account. As far as I'm concerned, support is part of their service and I expect proper support. So completely disgusting. Three weeks on and it was still broken. And when I say three weeks on, this is three more weeks on from the original four weeks it was broken. At this point, I was using a different browser. I had no option if I actually wanted to get anything done. Now, I was going to say if we all live long enough, I'll report back when they fixed it. But guess what? Stop press. They fixed it. Trouble is, that's not the first horrific support incident with Evernote. Their someday maybe attitude to support issues is absolutely shocking. Can I take my tin hat off now? If you like. Oh, thank you. I actually nearly resorted to using Evernote Clipper last week. I prefer OneNote to Evernote, but that's a discussion, I think, for another day. I needed to capture a really, 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 really long web page. 
It was a detailed list of all the features, um, additions and bug fixes for Office 365 since November 2016. You should have tried clipping the iWork one. I think you'll find that's about two lines. Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> anyway, when you clip a full page with OneNote Clipper, it creates an image, not editable text. And it seems there's a limit on the size of the image that it creates. Clipping the page generated an image that was larger than a maximum, which meant that about a quarter of the page content was missing. And if I tried to capture a region, it only captured the first paragraph, probably because 90% of the text was in accordions, even though I'd actually expanded those accordions. So I did try Evernote Clipper, but it did exactly the same thing. So I came to the conclusion that the problems was with the page and not with the clippers. To be honest, these notes apps are only as good as the methods they support for getting information in them. If the clipper's broken, the app's useless for collection purposes. Well, at least the Evernote saga had a happy ending. In that I didn't get arrested for anything during the drama, you mean? Yeah, pretty much. The witch's hat was on. The book of spells was poised. And an incantation invoking the wrath of the tech queen. Casting a spell upon them was heard loud and clear around MacBytes HQ. Thought I'd make mention of a recent upgrade to an app that we both have, but we don't really use to a great degree. Which may sound strange, but there are reasons. The app in question is a new version of Camtasia 2018 from TechSmith. It's a screen recorder and video editor. Now, it's from the people who make Snagit. That's one of our favourite apps for taking screen captures. Now, ScreenFlow is our primary app for video. It breaks spectacularly on a regular basis, though. Yes, as I mentioned earlier. Indeed. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. Over the years, the jeopardy of each update is palpable. We've had broken transitions. They were really fuzzy. So you've got beautifully crystal clear video and then every transition looked pixelated. Like, um, you know, you know, in these programs with a pixelated face out, look like that. Uh, I've had broken audio, constant, constant crashes, which is why I've got into the habit of literally every change, command and S, change, command and S, change, command and S. I literally could wear that out. When it works, it's great. But when it breaks, it's a complete nightmare because it's an app I use every single day. This is why Camtasia is our backup app. It's very capable. It has got extensive features. It just always seems to take me a lot longer to edit the content. Either there's an unfamiliarity. I also find it very mouse centric, the editing, where I use a lot of shortcuts in ScreenFlow. Possibly it's a combination of both. Is it worth buying, though? Well, the cross-platform aspect's always been welcome. Uh, there is a Windows version. The Windows version has been around for 18 years this year. And um, it used to be massively expensive, you know, on, on, on a par with Wirecast. So that one's very mature. The new features they've added to this version for the Mac, though, are exactly the same features they've added to the Windows version. So with the Mac version, it's actually the fourth iteration for Mac and they're aiming for parity, which pleases me immensely. So some of these new features, one's theming, which is great for assets. So they're the kind of call outs, the little boxes you see in videos put round things and uh, boxes with text in. You can now theme them. You can specify a foreground colour, two background colours, two accent colours and two fonts which is fantastic for consistency and it's also a great time saver. The time saving aspect comes into play because all the annotations can be updated with a single change. 
So if you've added annotations all the way through it and a client comes back and says, yeah, and I thought I wanted them purple, but I don't want them green and you're foaming at the mouth. Uh, don't have to worry. Just make one change in the theme and it automatically updates. Uh, the next thing that they're trumpeting as a, a, an enhanced feature is export speed. Now, improvements to export speed are always welcome because it's always going to be the bottleneck of production. They're claiming up to 50% improvement. I did find version two incredibly slow and I didn't notice much improvement in three. So what I did was I took the same recording recorded in version three and I exported it in three and 2018. And I found there was an improvement of about 18%, which I was happy with. Uh, that was my test export. But since then, I've actually processed a couple more things through it. Um, now, there's another case in point. These two recordings I had to process. I had to process because ScreenFlow, at the point of recording, I record in both. So I press record in ScreenFlow, press record in Camtasia and strut my stuff. The only problem was ScreenFlow. This is a live session, of course. ScreenFlow promptly crashed. And at that point, there's nothing I can do. I have to shut ScreenFlow down, reboot the machine and go, well, I can't do that, can I? Yeah, I'm live. Did I mention live? So I had to just think, you are flying on one engine, woman. So closed ScreenFlow down, got rid of it and relied on Camtasia. Luckily, it recorded. So I had these two very long recordings, like an hour and 20 and an hour and 30 to process. Speed wise, it's now up there with ScreenFlow. So we'll give them that export speed is much improved. Third feature, library. To be more accurate, multiple libraries. Huge bugbear of mine. Version one had a library. So version one of Camtasia for Mac had a library that they removed in version two, but left it in the Windows version. I know I could have used the Windows version, but previous Windows versions looked like Fisher Price had designed the interface. Version three of Camtasia for Mac appeared. I thought, oh, you had the library in one, you took it away in two, you will add it back in three. But no, they didn't. This version, it's back and better than ever. There are multiple libraries to store anything and everything that you can add on the timeline. Now, that probably sounds strange. ScreenFlow's library implementation, which only arrived with version seven a year ago, is a single global library and it contains only visual assets. There's no way in ScreenFlow to store annotations or groups of content, custom animations, transitions, nothing like that. Personally, I've not had a great experience with said library. I have had items vanish. I've had errors, probably to do with items vanishing for no good reason. So I gave up and decided not to use them at all. The ScreenFlow library model is probably best summed up as what were they thinking? Now, by comparison, the Camtasia library, not only has it got multiple libraries, but within each library, you can create folders and nested folders to organise your content. And anything that you can put on the timeline can be added to the library. As if that wasn't enough. There's robust import and export for sharing your libraries and just backing them up for yourself. There's also a growing TechSmith ecosystem, which is useful in two ways. It's great for the end user, and it also means there's more of a predictable revenue model for TechSmith. They're not just relying on the price of the software for their income. Now, when it comes to buying it, if you bought a previous version from TechSmith, which I had, the upgrade is £86. 
Now, why did I buy direct from TechSmith when it's activated software? Is it activated or registered? One or the other. Don't like it anyway. Basically, I can't do me. I can't stop my own stuff with it. You can have it on two machines. And that's not like me. The thing is, if I buy it from them, it's cross-platform. I get a Windows version thrown in. Now, in the Mac App Store, um, it's $99.99. So fractionally more expensive. Uh, but that is said to be a 50% off offer. So the proper price in the Mac App Store is $199.99. So it's basically the full cost, not an upgrade. Uh, it's just they've got it in at half price right now in lieu of being able to provide any discount, I'm assuming. Now, the thing is, if you buy it from the Mac App Store, it's not cross-platform because you don't have a serial number to activate the Windows version. You also don't get the optional extras, which I'll come on to talk about. And that upgrade price depends on the benevolence of TechSmith. Version 3 appeared in the Mac App Store at 199 and it was never reduced until the very, very end, at which point you pretty much knew a new version was coming. At least with this version, they've put it in the store at half price for a little while. Now, I said optional extras. TechSmith are extending what's available. In addition to the app, they're providing maintenance. <laughs> yes, maintenance. Remember that Wirecast maintenance, yes. I was tempted with this one, to be honest. Um, they're providing training materials with it as well. Um, so there are training videos available for free, but this maintenance thing gives you a lot more content. It's something like 15 to 17 hours of extra content. In addition to that, and this is completely optional, you don't have to take this at all, they're providing an asset library. Now, the asset library looks to me as though potentially it could raise even more revenue than the app because it's $199 a year. But as I say, there's some content in this asset library that's free. And then if you want the rest, you, you pay for it. But what's in there is not only TechSmith assets, but they've also shipped in from various suppliers. Uh, one was, was it Stockbox? There, there were various names. You can see the watermarks on them if you go and have a look. So if you decided to go to each library individually, it would probably cost you more than it would cost you from TechSmith. Uh, and there is a mini video series that's available as well. So they are extending what's available. So I thought that was quite interesting. Camtasia is the standard at work. We're mainly on Windows, um, but I'm liking the sound of the libraries. I think you need a challenge. Me? That's usually agonising because I've lived in ScreenFlow for 11 years. Go on. Mm, OK, challenge accepted. I'll give it another go on a specific project. Uh, and, and why those two videos I produced wouldn't really count was they were the easiest edit going on the planet. I call it a top and tail. I'm taking off the beginning. I'm taking off the end. And I'm leaving the rest completely alone. But I'll do a proper one with some call outs and stuff like that. And I will report back. You could well suffer for this. Thank you. <clears throat> now, we continue on MacBytes 10 with Lion. It was released on the 20th of July 2011. How did I manage to deal with this when that was Mum's birthday? I don't know. You probably said I'm going to download Lion and she said, go on. <laughs> Do you know, knowing Mum, she probably did. <laughs> yeah. I'll take you to lunch if you really want, Mum. No, it's OK, dear. You go, lie. You go play with your software. Go and play with your Lion. <laughs> It was the first OS that was download only, and it was available from the App Store for $29.99. 
Did that make a difference? Did you miss the face-to-face launch experience? Well, it wasn't quite the same sitting at home cursing the download speed, but it was warm and dry. A bit like the football. Football? Yeah, you used to queue up at Old Trafford at 6.30 in the morning for cup tickets, and now everything's automated. The tickets are charged to your credit card automatically. Mm, That's very true, actually. What I didn't know back then was that Apple actually did provide two alternative distribution mechanisms for users without broadband internet access, which back in 2011, there were still a few. You could do in-store downloads at retail stores and uh, they provided a USB flash drive containing the whole OS. Trouble was it was $69. But uh, no, I opted for the download route foolhardy as I was. It launched at 2pm, which is is odd, isn't it? Because now it's usually six o'clock. But 2pm our time would be 6am in the States. And it was 3.8 gig to download. Now, back then we were on a 10 meg B connection, but small as that sounds, because we're now on 385, I was better off than many and I was ready. (laughs) which was just as well. I had to pause and constantly restart, but I wasn't alone. Twitter was alive with folks suffering the same woes as me. It took hours, but eventually later I had it. I then needed to create the pen drive. I was installing on um, my secondary iMac, which was that, you know, you know, the, the Mac from hell. Never worked right from I know one. the one. It was that one. It was a 2009 24 inch silver with the black back. I blame the black back myself. It actually installed really quickly, but there was no chance the primary Mac was getting it because there was plenty still not working properly. Um, I can't work if I can't use Audio Hijack Pro and that usually they're usually pretty quick. But, you know, it wasn't there on launch day. So um, I put it on this this test bed Mac. Do you know that Mac finally turned it, its toes up? Because all I did with it was put OS after OS after OS on it. And in the end, it decided, no, I've had enough. (laughs) (laughs) It gave up before Apple um, officially stopped supporting that model. There was also some new features in Lion. Um, Lion brought us the infamous leg ulcer wallpaper. That was a feature? It was. More like a bug, but go on. It also brought us 250 new features, although only a handful were actually probably useful. I remember them trumpeting full screen apps. Never use them. Can't be doing with it. Half my interface disappears. And then Mission Control, the mongrel child of expose and spaces. I still miss the old spaces. I loved spaces. I never used the old spaces. Also brought us Launchpad, the iOS style app launcher. I never use it because it's still there today. Um, But occasionally it pops up when I hit F4 by accident instead of function and F4 in Excel. You know, I never understood why they thought that was needed or in some way useful on a Mac. But that could just be me. Many assumed it was auguring the arrival of a touchscreen Mac. That's going so well. Seven years and counting. What I will say is, and I I don't work like this. I am a mouse girl. I like precision. If you used a trackpad, there's a gesture to bring it up, isn't there? And you could probably pretty quickly flick an icon. So maybe if you've got a trackpad, it's more use. The MacBiter should let us know this. What I'll say is, you know, in your apps folder, yeah, I counted how many apps I had, and I think it was about three hundred and twenty. There's no way. I'm going to be flipping through, I mean, how many, how many apps can you get on a page? Let's have a look. F4. 
1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 14, 21, 35 on my... Right. so uh, I'd need sort of eight pages? Yeah. And then I'd need to know where everything is, and, and I've never known whether you can... Can you arrange those icons? Are they alphabetical? Can you organise them? It looks like... Ooh, yeah, you can track... The, you can do what you can do with iOS. You can track them into folders. How do I drag it? How do I drag it out of a folder? <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. Just the same. Done. Why do I want the same interface on my Mac as I do on my iPad? Because familiarity. Because Johnny said so. Because Johnny said so. Yes. <laughs> Should we move on, or have you got more about that? Oh, I could go on for, for much longer, yeah, well, but let's, carry on. Let's not. Autosave is another new feature. I didn't like this back then. I never have. I like to be able to choose whether to save. The same reason I don't like autosave in Microsoft Office Online. Uh, the, the Office desktop apps have it now, but only for files stored in OneDrive. And I've disabled it there as well. I wasn't keen on autosave because it meant I had to keep multiple copies of files in case I wanted to roll back. Now, I know there were versions, but didn't it work odd if the file was on an external drive? I don't know. I, I'm sh I vaguely remember something about if it was on the main hard drive, it, it versioned it. And if it was on an external drive, it would say this doesn't support versioning. And I'm going to automatically save and overwrite your previous version. I think you could be right. So yeah. I think that was when I disemboweled it. From memory. <laughs> but you mentioned the office ones, and I haven't. I've left that one turned on. Quite like that one. I wonder why. I don't know. <laughs> may, may, maybe, brace yourself, maybe I trust Microsoft more with my files <laughs> than Apple. <laughs> oh, it's a sad day, isn't it? Maybe you do. <laughs> no, I never really... I think with the versioning, I maybe used it once or twice, but I only need it for real when an Apple app screws up, basically. I have demoed it in courses, but other than that, I've not used it. Another feature was uh, resume on restart. And that's a feature I actually like. Should we put the buntings out? Found something I like. Please do. Funny thing is, can't be doing with it. I'll turn that off. <laughs> oh, dear. And then there was iCal and address book. Skewomorphic. Johnny, what were you thinking? It was a no-brainer to use BusyCal. In fact, it would have been a no-brainer to use a paper diary to escape the interface of those horrors. iCal was absolutely hideous. Didn't a little um, cottage industry start up where people were making their own interfaces and telling mm, you how to hack it? I think so. iCal was bad, but it was only surpassed by the monstrosity that was a dress book. <laughs> and I do understand Apple's need to redesign applications for the iPad. And I did ex accept their explanation that a different form factor necessitated a different interface, which is what I'm saying about, what was it again? Launchpad, that thing. Big icons, iMac, not using, that thing. But there's a major but there. If that's true, you need to redesign it for an iPad. Why are you retrofitting that iPad interface designed for a touchscreen back to my Mac? It was, it was then and it remains completely disingenuous. I'm also thinking about things like the changes they made to the inspectors in the iWork apps. I'm going to move on before you reach meltdown about iWork. Not that this next bit is guaranteed to calm me down, of course. Reverse scrolling. As you scroll up, the page moves down like iOS. It didn't actually bother me. I just got used to it. 
Oh, I took this to extremes. Uh, there was an app, Scroll Reverser, from Pilot Moon. Uh, they're the people that make, um, oh, is it Popclip? Popclip? Um, I don't know. Shall I, is it Popclip? Shall I have a look? Pilot Moon. I think, I'm sure it's Popclip. Ostensibly, this app was there to return the new scroll method to be the old scroll method. But the app was far cleverer than that. And I, as ever, took a different approach. I installed Scroll Reverser on all my Snow Leopard installs to get ready for my upgrade to Lion whenever that may have been, because I didn't do it on day one on all my Macs. What actually amazes me is that you flip between the scrolling on Windows and Mac on a daily basis. I just cannot do that. I was so grateful that my Chromebook has what they call an Australian scrolling option. And I've even managed to persuade my physical Windows laptop to work the same way as my Mac. It was Popclip, by the way. I thought it was. I still use that. Drop shelf. Oh, that was the one that was like, um, yoink. yoink. Yeah. Yes. Scroll yes, reverser and a couple of others. Um, another one, another one, airdrop. Airdrop, I finally found a use for it seven years on, as I talked about earlier, with the transferring of those video files. Oh, that's handy to know. Um, Airdrop's fantastic when it works. I was using Photosync to sync my photos to get them off my phone. And I, th I think I reached a point where I had that many on there that it got very upset. And I just wanted to send myself some images. And if you remember, you used to be able to do it with Printopia. And that broke. It, it was to do with photos were fine, but screenshots, not so much. So I thought I'll have to try and airdrop it. I think the problem was, and I, this is going to sound ridiculous, <laughs> your clues in the name. Um, it didn't work too well. It wasn't very reliable. Sometimes it was there, sometimes it wasn't. Which was the point I realised I actually didn't have Wi-Fi turned on on my iMac. Uh, this was because it was cabled into the network, which could explain why it was a little bit shonky. Uh, so it's working pretty well now. So uh, when I want to do something with photos on my Mac, and I've only got sort of a handful of them, I, I will airdrop them to myself. I actually think with airdrop, Apple had a good idea. That us, what shall we say, <clears throat> longer term Mac users, shall we say. I'm going to talk about muggles now. When I'm out, I've got some friends and they, every one of them have got an iPhone and they're not particularly technically minded. So the Bluetooth's turned on, AirDrop's turned on, everything's turned on. You know, whatever Apple set up, that's how it is. Didn't we mention the, this um, friend who, who did an update while they had a shower? Yeah, we did. <gasps> I've still not recovered from that. Well, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. So we're out. And I'd taken a photo and my friend sat there and I'm looking at the photos and I just tapped it and I thought, I wonder, I wonder if he's got airdrop turned on. And as I say, we were out. We were not on the same Wi-Fi. And up it popped, airdrop, and there was his phone. So I thought, well, I know he wants a copy of this picture. So I tapped it and he literally had his phone in his hand doing something with it. And the message came up on it and he went, oh, what's that? And he said, you know, do you want to accept this photo from Elaine? And he went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he tapped it. Oh, good grief. He's never been the same since. Absolutely loves the feature. And I think that kind of the way that people look like that, you know, like the awe of it just works. That's how we were back in the day. Do you remember those days? Mm, and now we're cynical. Yeah, time ago. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're old and cynical. Yeah. Well, they're still at that point with something like that. Now, 
obviously for one photograph, it's fantastic. But you know, don't try moving your two gig video anytime soon. You were actually quite lucky it worked. I was. I was. And and two minutes isn't bad at all. I wouldn't have tried that. I think uh, one of the videos I've got, I, I managed to record an entire amateur theatre production. And I think it was about an hour 40. I think the video is 40 odd gig. <laughs> and I took one look and thought, yeah, won't be airdropping that. Yeah, I've, I've, so got, think, I've got a copy of that on my other Mac. Yeah, I think it depends on how you actually use it. If it's one photo, awesome. But, you know, don't try doing any serious work with it. No, buy a cable and be done. So, uh, yes, that, that was where I'm at with it with airdrop. It's great when you're out. Socially, it's fantastic, but but not for serious work. Not if you're using your phone as, as your video camera, which I was. Got one of those gimbal things. And, and yeah, it was proper. If you remember, we talked about the Munich video. Do you remember the year and I had an iPhone 4S? So it wasn't even a 5. It was a 4S. And we did our footage, didn't we? We were getting some B-roll of the flowers that had been left. And the MUTV crew were in front of us. So obviously they took priority. So I waited behind them. Didn't even have a gimbal back then, just had an iPhone in my hand. And I panned along the flowers getting the B-roll and stuff. And that was it. Took some stills and, and I was done. And then when we got back home, uh, you got the footage from them, didn't you? The rush footage. I did. That they very kindly shared with us. And um, we compared the two. Now, you need to know the camera this guy had was the size of a small donkey. Absolutely amazing microphone on it, the rest of it. But you, know, you don't need that. You don't you don't need sound when you're doing flowers. And when we put the footage side by side, the iPhone footage was sharper. So it's not that you're making do with that to record. It's actually incredibly good. But then the bit where you transfer it, then then the stuff Apple's bringing in doesn't really work too well for that. Just my take on it. So that was Lion. Lion was um, 10.7. Have you noticed the odd numbers never good? I've never noticed that. Well, you remember Leopard? Yeah. That was 10.5. And Snow Leopard fixed everything that broke. Mm. And then Lion came along and, and broke it all again. So hopefully 10.8, Mountain Lion, will fix everything. We'll, we'll find that out next time. We will. We'll see. But on to Good But Gone. And today's Good But Gone was a particular favourite of mine. And it was iFooty. iFooty was born in April 2009. And it was discontinued in April 2016. And during those seven years, it provided me with the latest soccer news and up-to-the-minute scores. It originally covered just UK-based football teams, but it was soon extended to cover many teams and many competitions across the world. One of its best features was goal alerts. And in the app preferences, what you did is you selected one or more teams to follow. And every time there was a goal in a match involving your selected team or teams, you got a notification on your device, which included an accompanying sound effect of a crowd cheering, which in the end I turned off the sound, that is, not the notifications. Although it was a great app, its timing wasn't great. Because they were using some third party news service, often the goal alerts would come in after the game had finished. So what have I replaced it with? Well, for a long time, I used an app called MU Live, which was an unofficial app dedicated to Manchester United. And I did that because I'm only really interested in the one team. However, at some point last year, the notification stopped working. And that was the main reason that I used it. 
So I looked around for an alternative and I found a free app called Goal Live. And it's actually very much like iFooty. But unlike iFooty, the goal notifications are generally instantaneous. I actually think the ball is still in the back of the net when it sends these notifications out. I remember not long ago, uh, I watched a live game on the BBC and the goal alert came in within about 10 seconds of the goal being scored. Now, where I do have a problem, and it's not the app's fault, is with the matches that I watch on Sky. I usually watch the games via the Sky Sports mobile app on my iPad or my iPhone, and the app is generally 30 to 60 seconds behind real time. So I find that very often my Apple Watch will buzz with a goal alert, and then 30 to 60 seconds later, I'll see the goal on my iPad or iPhone. (laughs) You'd have an even bigger problem if you were at a live match and the watch buzzed and 30 seconds later the ball was in the back of the net. Yes, I think that's um, what they call it, Mystic Meg. Mm. <laughs> and that that reminds me of when you slung the radio in the wardrobe to muffle the real-time commentary when we had the monkey box for watching European games back in the 90s. Good grief, that goes away back. What was the real name of that monkey box? I know we called it the monkey box because of the ads. It was a stuffed monkey in Johnny Vegas. Yeah, just looking it up. They used to sit around a kitchen table drinking tea, didn't they? He did, on digital. That's right. Flaming thing never worked right, mind. The picture quality was shocking. And despite the radio being in the wardrobe, you could hear the neighbours celebrating eons before we ever saw a goal. Oh, no, it, it was not great, was it? 1999, I think that was. That was the thing, that monkey box, that I took to a hotel somewhere when I was away up for work one night. And I, I, I travelled. I mean, I know we talk about we, we go away. That time we went to the beach soccer with printers. And goodness oh, yes, knows we what took else. three printers down to Brighton but I, with us. I took a monkey box and an indoor aerial to watch this football match and it didn't work in the end. <laughs> the thing was, it was digital TV, wasn't it, in in an age when we were still analogue, to be honest. So I think there were like two places in the country that you could possibly have got some kind of signal. And one of those was like up Blackpool Tower. Oh, True. no, it was. It was absolutely shocking. I think the box, was there a subscription? I think there was a subscription. Yeah, I remember the box being around the £50 mark. And you, you're all dead excited because Sky had been around for a while. But on digital had got some kind of... Um, exclusive rights so you had no option you had to buy the thing if you wanted to see it but it was so poor it was unbelievable no i think actually you what you'll have to do now is throw your watch in the back of the wardrobe to muffle it mm, yeah but then i'll lose my standing hours so oh that won't do at all you know what i'm like i'm obsessed with them the easiest way is to turn the goal alerts notifications off but i'm not doing that no 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 because if you turn something off you'll never get it turned back on again true anyway on to the hardware review and you've got new toys And an old toy too, because I might have mentioned it before. But if I have, it's a great piece of kit and today I can save you almost 70%. I bought a laptop stand from 12 South called Park Slope. Now, 12 South do some fantastic stuff. They are the people behind uh, BookBook. Do you remember 12 South BookBook? I do. It was um, a case for laptops and it made it look like a book. But they also do a load of other stuff. Uh, There's the Hi-Rise Pro, there's the Curve Laptop Stand. There's a book arc as well that we looked at for iPad One. Do you remember when we we took your iPad One in? Wasn't that the Magically Multiplying one? I think so. It was. Well, we spent 
virtually all the all the Saturday in uh, the Apple Store, and when we made them open all the stands so we could try them, and the one I really fancied was the book art, but decided not to go for it in the end. So we walked out and left them packing them all up again. Uh, they also do iPhone stands, headphone stands, uh, the plug bug. The plug bug's a really nice one, but that it's a little bit expensive that. But they do a load of stuff like that. Now, this one that I'm talking about, which is the Park Slope, is sold as a laptop stand. But as a laptop stand, I think it might be a bit limiting because there's no adjustment on it and it's very low. Um, it wasn't an issue for me, given why I bought it, but it literally stands about seven to eight centimetres at, at the back edge and one centimetre at the front. Now, it wasn't an issue for me because I bought it specifically for my 12.9 inch iPad Pro and I wanted my iPad Pro off the desk so it wasn't completely flat, but I wanted it quite flat. I just wanted it slightly sloped, hence park slope. Um, and the reason was I wanted to write in it with a pencil and I didn't want the bulk of something that was adjustable. Uh, this thing was made of silver aluminium, so it was very lightweight, but it was strong and it was really easy to move. It was sturdy in use, so it wasn't rocking all over the place, even given that it was a 12.9 inch iPad that was sat on top of it. And it was perfect for my use. The angle I found was spot on for writing on an iPad. The problem? The price. 12 South make great kit, but the price reflects the quality and it was £45. Never fear. I found an alternative from Thingy Club. It's exactly the same in look. Ordered one. Great quality. Perfect uh, angle for writing for an iPad. And the Thingy Club version is available in both silver and gold. And it was less than half the price. It was only £20. But then it got even better. I carried on looking, you see. Can't help myself. And I found a second alternative called the Slipknot Stand. It's only available in silver, but again, it's virtually indistinguishable from the 12 South version. But it's only $14.99. The only differences I could find were that the box is a brown perfunctory thing. It's not a colourful sales tool. It is literally just a plain brown box. There's a slot at the back of the thing for cable management as well. Now, obviously, that would be more pertinent with a laptop unless you've actually got your iPad on charge while you're using it. But the slot for the cable management is larger on the cheaper version. And on the front edge, there's a small rubber bump. Now, that is, if you can imagine it, your, lap, your, your iPad is leaning on, on a slight angle. And you need something at the front to, to prop that up, to, to stop it sliding off. And the rubber bump on the front edge that holds it is slightly taller. But in use, neither of those things is actually a bad thing. Uh, what did make me smile in this plain brown box was that it included instructions. I mean, this is a one piece thing. You, you basically take it out of the box, put it on the desk, you're done. That's it. But it included instructions. Having looked at all three, if I had to choose only one of the available models, I would definitely go with the cheapest one at only $14.99. Now, I have got other laptop stands and I do sometimes put an iPad on them. Uh, I still love my A-frame and I've also got that other one, uh, a Just Mobile stand. In fact, when I say one, I think I've got four or five Just Mobile stands. They're, they're non-adjustable, but they hold it very high. So I consider that 
to be used for watching stuff. So for consuming content, perfect. But for actually using it in terms of writing on it, there's no way those stands would work, which is why I was looking at laptop stands instead. And those are absolutely perfect. So it's over 70% you can save there and highly, highly recommended. Now it's that time. Are you ready? iPhone, iPhone, iPhone. I was going to count you in. Should we do it again? Okay. One, two, three. iPhone, 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 iPhone. 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 Mm, Not bad. We're out of practice. Yeah. Yeah. We really should do that properly and record it. It's the only way. We're recording this show on the 10th of July, 2018, which is the 10th anniversary of the launch of the iOS App Store. Of course, it was of no significance to us. We didn't have an iPhone. Yeah, but that was soon to be rectified as the iPhone 3G launch the next day was on 11th. Well, it would be, wouldn't it? The 11th of July. Oh, well done. Well done. (laughs) 11th of July follows the 10th. Yes. Prize for math this year goes to Mike. Um, I spent most of the week trying to decide between black and white, eventually settling on white. Me too. Then there was the spectacular six-hour wait at the Trafford Centre with Team Trafford in complete meltdown. To be honest, it was O2's servers that went into meltdown and there was no reviving them. Actually, waiting was less of a problem than the dawning of the thought we'd have to leave without our promised new phones. And I had no desire to use that Motorola Razor for another minute, much less another day, or until O2 could get that act together. And by early afternoon, I think we'd been there from sort of half six, I'll admit to being more than a little concerned. Something I would have shared with the world, but my Motorola Razor didn't do data. Once the horror was over, though, we were off and we were running. I recall food being the first priority. It was. We went to a Chinese restaurant in the Trafford Centre and people actually queued up just to see our iPhones. Can you imagine that today? Everyone and their pet have got smartphones. But once the food was consumed, we decamped to Starbucks. Oh, the shame. But in our defence, it was 10 years ago and they did have free Wi-Fi. Now, without one password, I was very, very, very glad I'd had the sense to use something logical and memorable for my Twitter password. Yeah, those were the days of the five character password for me and were still the same five character password for everything. Oh, my word. (laughs) Anyway, the joy of the 3G was fabulous for 11 months. But then came the shiny new 3GS with video. I was desperate for that. But sadly, I was under contract with O2 and they wouldn't budge. Not even when I offered to extend my current contract. So, no 3GS for us. I wasn't as bothered as you. I was because I would have loved more video of Maya. We did have a Kodak flip camera thing, a Kodak 8 something. But it was high maintenance by comparison to using your phone. That was when I made the decision never to be tied down again. And I've had SIM-only contracts since then. I decide what phone I use and when I swap it. And the next time I swapped it was the iPhone 4 launch in 2010. I recall that one well. So do I. We mentioned it earlier. We were locked inside a car park viewing an ever-increasing queue from afar. I was ready to kick the doors in. When I discovered a fire door, I seem to recall. Not intended for entry into the building, but hey, by that time I'd have dismantled the wall brick by brick, so in we went. Should have been a doddle. I'd pre-ordered two. It was Bumpergate, if you recall. And yes, I'd already ordered two of those as well. 
50 quid. What were we thinking? Next, there was the calamity of getting to the front of the queue and being informed it was strictly one phone per order. I had placed one order for two phones. As you know what Apple pre-order day roulette is like, wasn't going to risk attempting it twice. Blink! And the shipping date needs a five-year diary to accommodate it. I was about to call the paramedics. When I spotted a tame Apple Store employee that I knew well, I headed straight for him. He stood no chance. No, as the thought of me foaming at the mouth because we'd only got a single iPhone was too much for him to consider as well. It took just seconds for me to persuade him to process the single order separately as two individual orders. And the day was saved. It was. I joined YouTube that day because I posted a short video showing the queue at the Apple store as we headed into Waterstones to admire our new toys. That's why I have two YouTube accounts with an identity crisis on there. Yeah, and the bumper lasted all of five minutes. Yep, yours split. And Apple came to their senses and refunded everybody anyway. Next, it was the 4S in 2011, but you gave it a miss. I did. Wise in hindsight, as there was only room for one map by Siri in this house. That's very true. We picked Liverpool 1 this time, and it was a horrifically early start, as I recall it. Not to mention the queue being infiltrated by gangs of carpetbaggers. These were people asking people who were stood in the queue to buy extra phones for them to flog on. I mean, they were going to pay you for them, but oh, I didn't like it. We did manage to secure MacBite Siri, though. Mm, but it's never been the same here since, has it? Could say that again. I love the speed of the phone, though, over the four. And of course, Siri was a joy to test out. Many hours of happy fun. Um, so much so, I completely skipped the 5 and the 5S. I did as well. I wasn't bothered about the bigger screen or the fingerprint recognition. Me neither, until I had them with the iPhone 6 Plus. Uh, yes, I went large in the autumn of 2014 with a new iPhone after over three years with the iPhone 4S. I didn't. I was still with my trusty iPhone 4, but admittedly, it was starting to show its age. My overriding memory of the iPhone 6 Plus launch was endless screaming matches with Apple. Mm, I miss most of that with Mum's sick. I'd ordered for release day delivery and they'd done a bait and switch after I'd confirmed it. So it said would arrive release day. Then the delivery went from release day to something stupid like six weeks. And of course, I've got mum sat there who's like, you are going to get that phone, aren't you? I played holy hell with them. I can well imagine. So can I. Me too. Yes, that was not happening. Let's just say they came round to my way of thinking quickly. Not only did they manage to get a phone to me within 36 hours, compensation for my trouble came my way too. And I love my 6 Plus. I very quickly got used to the huge screen and the iPhone 4 looks like a toy now. Mine's on my desk uh, and actually using it as now, as, as I said before, as a backup recording device. And it's so tiny. However, all was not well in iPhone land because my iPhone 6 Plus died a spectacular, if somewhat unexpected death, calling for an emergency trip to Team Trafford. They must have heard I was coming. I was settled in for the long haul because I was in the walking queue. I'd failed miserably to get an appointment at any point in my lifetime. Do you remember that? Sp I mean, I, don't, I haven't looked lately. The spate of um, you tried to book an iMac in and it was like it'll take us three months. I remember that, that. Yes, I remember that. So I was ready, as I say, for the long haul. Flask? Start. Sleeping bag? Start. 
when they completely astounded me. 20 minutes in and out, new phone. And the rest of the week setting it up again. Pretty much. I did manage to write a blog post, though, about all the fun I was having while I was doing it, though. Imaginative title of which was A Week Without My iPhone. By this stage, my iPhone 4 was beyond help. I volunteered Dad's iPhone 4S. It was pressed into service for the short term before our final upgrade to date, which was the iPhone 7 Plus, or rather two of them. On order, within seconds of the pre-order page going live. And still not due to arrive until three weeks after release day. The pain of which was only mitigated by the arrival of my first Apple Watch. Which is now my first Apple Watch. True. We were unusually away for a long weekend between the release day and the predicted arrival day. When suddenly the ship, the flaming things, had to dash back to ensure I could lay the obligatory man traps in rediment. That's where we are today. Didn't bother with the 8 or the 10. Itching for something new later this year, though. Although, this will be shocking for you. You really might want to sit down, dear MacBiter. Somebody, not a million miles away, mentioned the dirty word Android the other day. I was just annoyed. Something <laughs> something was annoying me. I can't remember what it was. And, and I said, it's, it, it's enough to make you go Android. And then... After I'd calmed down a couple of hours later, I was like, can't actually go Android because we're so tied up with the Apple ecosystem. <laughs> the thing that got me was when I asked you what it was, you said, I can't remember. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> well, one of two things will happen there. Either it'll come back and you definitely will remember, or it'll just go completely and then you'll never have another problem. I know where my money lies, though. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, just before we go, you've got another toy, haven't you? Oh, sure do. Retro Batch. New app. It's from Flying Meat, the folk that make Acorn, the image editor. Or Flying Acorn, as I called it the other day. Whatever works for you. Now, you know I love a new tech toy to play with here at Markbytes HQ. For the uninitiated, it's an app to batch process images. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hard to get excited about batch processing images. Think again. It's amazing. It's super efficient. It's virtually unlimited in what it can do. And it's not just batch processing in one way in terms of I'll batch process 100 images and, and change the size, which means I have to run another batch process to change the name. Oh, no, no. This can chain batch processes together. Because of that, you can motor through thousands of images doing things automatically, which would have taken hours before Retrobatch arrived. And the best bit, you can join me live on the 16th of July at 8pm UK time for a rundown of all Retrobatch can do for you. And believe me, it's a lot and it's magic. So uh, full details in the link that's in the show notes. And that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we'd love to hear from you. So send your questions, your comments, your queries by email to macbytesuk at gmail.com. Use the contact form on the website or send us an audio file. Sign up for the newsletter at macbytes.co.uk and follow us at twitter.com slash macbytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until the next time, this has been Mike and Elaine bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. She's useless. Who is? Alexa. What's she done now? Elaine asked for three lines.
and Alexa placed an order for three arms. I bet that went down well. Well, I had to look up some of the words Elaine used, but yes I certainly enjoyed it. It'll be even better when they arrive. She doesn't know what one iron is for, much less three of them. Anyway, I fixed it. You cancelled the order? No, I ordered the three lands she asked for. You did what? I ordered the three lands she asked for and what's more, I managed to secure free two-hour prime delivery. For crying out loud. She said play three lions, not order them with two-hour prime delivery, you muppet. OMG. Shall I Google last-minute flights? If you would, I'll pack.